Next on Abounding Grace. God was looking for one thing from the Philistines. And could he be looking for that same thing from you? And that is repentance. Just turn your life away from your sin. Admit. Confession and repentance go together. When you confess, you're a breath away from repentance. Confession means to say the same thing. That's what the Greek word means. You know, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, if we confess our sins. This is amazing grace. It's been well said, there must be conviction before there can be conversion. It's kind of like the person who is seriously ill. And if he doesn't believe he's in danger, he won't accept the diagnosis and take the necessary treatment. Now, spiritually speaking, if the symptoms of our condition persist, it's mercy designed to push us toward treatment and healing. Find your place in 1 Samuel chapter 6 as we bring you Abounding Grace. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor with his message, God does the impossible. First Samuel chapter 6, we left off seeing the Ark of the Covenant being passed around the cities of the Philistines. The Philistines defeated Israel in battle and they took it, recognizing that it represented the very presence of God. To them, the Ark of the Covenant became a sign and a symbol that their gods, little g, were greater than the, the God of Israel, big G, and to the Israelites up to this point, at, at this time in history, the ark was only seen as a good luck charm, one that was taken and one that was ripped off and brought great sorrow. To God, the ark of the covenant was a point of contact, a place of his presence, a place where mercy would be given. Because you know, in the ark, as we've described it before, it was just a small box, but it had a lid on the top that was known as the mercy seat. And it was here, once a year, that the high priest on the Day of Atonement would bring the sacrificial blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The term literally comes to us from the Hebrew word meaning to cover or to appease or to cleanse or cancel or even the technical term of to make atonement for. And the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, was the only place in the world where atonement could be made. The mercy seat on the Ark was symbolic foreshadowing the coming of the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth, the sins of the world, I should say, of the people. And yet in this season of Israel's history, the ark has been relegated just to a good luck charm. It's being passed around, causing great trouble for the Philistines. So pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the, of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you'll be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. 
Then, verse 4, they said, What is the trespass offering which shall, we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and all, all your lords. We went through the various options of what the tumors could be in our study last time, so pick it up. There's some interesting theories of what they were. Verse 5, Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats, that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. And by the way, those of their Bible students, because the tumors or, or these golden things were made of tumors and rats, they, they would conclude that it leads more, that it was something like the bubonic plague that was spread by rats. And I totally can see that. But then one of the other options, well, you can pick up the study and listen to that. But some of you remember, we, we don't know exactly, but if you're pulling from the text it could have been a plague-like uh, thing with little rats running around biting you, carrying nastiness. So here they are. Make the images. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods, notice little g, and from your land. Verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart and take the calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you're returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go and watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory to the area of Beth Shemesh, then he has done us a great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. Very interesting. The mindset of a person, this is what we're gaining insight to the person that has a hardened heart toward God. A person that's resisting the judgment of God. You, if you've ever wondered what it's like, you, you'll see right here, this is what's happening to a a, a land, a people, calling for leaders. They, they are obviously under the hand of judgment of God. He's made it very, very clear. He's demonstrated that already in the temple of the false god Dagon. Remember, it fell down. They put it back up. It fell down. Its hands were off. Its head was cut off. God was establishing to them that he is greater. He is wiser. He is stronger than any of their false gods represented by statues. And then these plagues come upon them ravage them and cause them great pain and sorrow. And far from being the prize that the Philistines thought it was, the Ark of the Covenant was a source of great difficulty, great consternation. God glorified himself in the temple of Dagon, showing how their false god was foolish with his head cut off and impotent with his hands cut off, followed by a literal judgment of these tumors, plagues, some suggest hemorrhoids. Whatever it was, it was not good. And over a period of seven months, the lords of the Philistines had finally had enough. But here's what I find interesting. They recognize something is happening here, and they've only relegated it to two options. Either God is doing it, or you notice at the end of verse 9, it's just by chance that all these things are happening to us. Those were their two options. Either God or a fluke, that they didn't factor in a third option, and that was submitting to the God that they admit, not denying him, not trying to find a way out, but simply accepting, where did their concept of the God of Israel, well, they knew about the history, they had facts, 
They mentioned it here. They knew about what happened with the Egyptians. They knew about Pharaoh. All true stories. You know, some people will like to come to the scriptures and go, oh, you know, that's all fairy tale. That's all. Well, by the time the Philistines come along in 1 Samuel, they believed that the true story of God delivering the children of Israel from Egypt, they're rehearsing it. These unbelieving pagan guys are going, we know what God did in Egypt. We know how it went down with Pharaoh. And you don't want it to go down like that with you. You remember. It's amazing, despite the facts, how people will take the facts and purposely deny them for their own purposes. But it's true. So in verse 2, they call for the diviners. Those that they looked for direction, and they got advice. Get rid of the ark. That's your problem. Get rid of the ark. That's bad news. Don't you see it's bad news? It's bad news. And yet, even sending it back, even giving it back, they would test God even more. This was a pretty elaborate plan. It was set up for so God would fail. If you notice that. The way they set this up to send the ark back and to discern whether it was by chance or by God, they set, it was a setup against God. God would have lost with their setup in their minds. They're setting it up. There's no way this could happen. This, I wrote down the list. I found 10 things that had to happen in order for God, I mean, 10 things all in, all in order, all together, in order for God to be God. Just 10 things. I don't know how many, you know, some people are listening in right now and you go, I feel the same way about God. You know, I'm not really interested in church and I'm not really interested in Christians and I've been burned and there's hypocrites. And, and you know what? If this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, then maybe I'll believe. Well, check this out. If that's you, there are 10 things right here that happen. Some are not so significant in others, but they all build together. Ten things that the Philistines said the same thing. So you're not alone if you feel that way. The Philistines felt the same way. And they want to not have a life of accountability, so they stack the cards against God. Number one, send it away. So that was pretty easy. That's an easy one to do. Number two, send it with a trespass offering. Again, easy. Number three, make five golden tumors, which is kind of interesting. I wonder what those look like. And five golden rats. You know, it's like, okay. And then with the images, give God the glory. Because we believe, he, you know, we're going to appease God. So, let's give, so give God the glory. And then fifthly, make a new cart. Again, these are all things that are easy to do. They're all stacked. Make a new cart. Hitch two milk cows. First go find two milk cows. Then hitch them together. And they've never been yoked together. So it's the first time they're ever feeling a yoke which remember a yoke was a wooden contraption. With the, it was kind of built up like, a, you know, maybe like, um, like handcuffs where there were two, two holes together, but it was made of wood and you would put the animal, the oxen in together so that you can harness their strength together. And we get the picture in the New Testament when the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked. Speaking of believers, connecting spiritually and with, in relationship with unbelievers. Says, he uses the phrase, don't be unequally yoked. It's the same picture where you would put two oxen of the same size, about the same age, that have worked the same amount of time together because they would go together. You wouldn't put an ox and a donkey in the yoke because they would fight one another. Or you wouldn't put an older ox with a younger ox or a larger one with a smaller one because you would want them to be as equally yoked as possible. Just like the Bible. The Bible says, believers with believers. That's you single people. It's just a word from the Lord because of this little word yoke is a reminder. You don't, you just be patient. Be patient, single one. Be patient. I know it gets hard at times. I know it gets lonely. But be patient. You don't want to be unequally yoked. It will be, it will cause you pain and problems for a long, long time, if not the rest of your life. Just wait on God's perfect choice. You remember with Adam, 
you know, being in a place of loneliness, in order for God to connect Adam with Eve, he put him to sleep. I think it's a great picture. Just go to sleep. Well, you mean, Ed, when I wake up in the morning? No, 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 no. It just speaks of resting in the Lord. It just speaks of really, truly, hey, go to sleep. I'll take care of it. You know, because when you're asleep, you're in the, your most vulnerable place. You're completely out of it, and, and really, it's one of those places where you probably don't realize it, but when you're sleeping, you're really trusting in the Lord. It might even be something you pray about before, you know, God, I'm going to sleep. I just want to acknowledge that I put my whole life, I'm trusting you while I'm sleeping. That you'll watch my back because the Bible says, God, that you, don't, you never sleep or slumber. So while I'm asleep, you're still watching out for me. And so rest in the Lord. Same with this yoke. You, you, they, they were to take now two milk cows. They, they would never work the yoke. Put them together. Then they would take the milk cows and take their calves away. But keep them in, in plain sight. But separate the moms from their calves. Then send the ark away. Then watch. If it goes to Beth Shemesh, then God has done this. If not, then it happened by chance. All right, this elaborate scheme was designed to show God in their, to prove that God was a failure. He's not involved in this. This isn't, this isn't God. I know everybody's talking about the God of Egypt, the God that prevailed over Egypt, the God that prevailed over, but this isn't that God. I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. And then they start setting up all these elaborate schemes so that at the end you're going, well, I guess, it's, I guess you're right. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that we read with the Philistines doing it in ancient history. We chuckle. But I find it's a common thing that followers of Jesus do today. Christians, believers, they do the same thing. Oh, don't, don't tell me, I've never got two milk cows and hid their calves. No, 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 I know. But, you know, you come across something in your life where the Bible's clear. It's not of the opinion of man. It's not some pastor on the radio. It's just crystal clear. You read it in your own devotions. You, 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 you read it. You concluded. You saw it. You, you know it's from the, You know God's speaking to you. It couldn't be clearer. You could call 20 people and ask them, what do you think, what do you think? And, mo- and that's one of those times where all 20 go, man, bam, bam, bam. So I'm not calling anymore. I know it took 20 people to finally tell you that's from the Lord. But when confronted with the truth, you'll start hearing things or even saying things. This is what the word says, but, but you don't understand. But you know, yeah, you don't get it. I know what the Bible says, but, you know, if you were in my shoes, you wouldn't. You see, God with the Philistines was looking for one thing and one thing only. It's the same thing when God brings you to a point where the Bible's clear, but you don't want to change your life. You don't want to submit. You could go under the heavy yoke of judgment. You could face judgment after judgment. How often I've seen guys throw their whole life away for some casual encounter, sin. They, they throw their whole progress and they're walking with Jesus away. They exchange, you know, the, the dinner of royalty for trash, digging in the trash can, quite literally. And you get the opportunity to share with them. And they go, no, no, no. I, I, they don't say this, but they're really saying, I like my trash. I like my trash. That royalty thing and all the responsibilities and what God, no, 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 I don't. And, and, and believers do this all the time. They elaborate schemes to squirm out of the will of God for your life. Justifications and reasons and excuses. And 
God was looking for one thing from the Philistines. And could he be looking for that same thing from you? And that is repentance. Just turn your life away from your sin. Admit. Confession and repentance go together. When you confess, you're a breath away from repentance. Confession means to say the same thing. That's what the Greek word means. You know, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us. If we confess our sins, confession and repentance. Confession is saying the same thing that God does about that in your life. Repentance is turning away from it. They're like two sides to the same coin. It's not just, man, man, I mean, it could be God. Well, forget the schemes, just submit to God. If you're even thinking that it could be God, then just submit to him under the mighty hand of God. The Bible says if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he'll lift us up. So can I walk you through, lest you don't believe me yet, can I walk you through a few scriptures? Let's go over to Proverbs with me. Proverbs chapter 16. This is a repetitive theme throughout the Proverbs. How careful we need to be to stay away from this. How careful we need to be with what I call and what the Bible calls the plans of man. The plans of man. Start in chapter 16 with me in verse 1. And we'll just do a little walk through the Proverbs. Remember, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Wisdom's important in order to use the knowledge that you have. So it's one thing to know something. It's a whole other thing on how, what to do with what you know. That's wisdom. So it's great to have a lot of Bible knowledge, but we, with the Bible knowledge, we need the wisdom of God on how to use it. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of tools in the toolbox. You have no idea what to do with them. So here's the wisdom when it comes to the plans of man. Number one, verse, verse one of chapter 16. The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Verse 3, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Look at verse 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Turn over to chapter 19, verse 21. Chapter 19, verse 21. Again, it's so easy to overcomplicate the simplicity of a relationship with Jesus with all of our ideas, with all of our thoughts, with all of our reasons, with all of our excuses, with all of our plans. So notice with me, chapter 19, verse 21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. Look at chapter 20, verse 24. Chapter 20, verse 24. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? Look at chapter 21, verse 30. It says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The battle, or excuse me, the horses, verse 31, is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. In another place, the Proverbs say, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. If the Philistines would have humbled themselves before God and recognized the judgment of God and the mercy of God. You go, wait a minute, where's the mercy and the grace? If God wanted to wipe the Philistines out at this time, you know what he would have done? Wipe the Philistines out in one spot, no problem. But he was merciful and gracious and waiting 
And instead, they're scheming and planning and trying to squirm out of what is so obvious. You see, there are many times in our lives that we are overruled by God. Add this to your prayer life, would you? Thank God he overrules you. Just say it. I know you don't like it. (laughs) Who does? Many times we'll see, though, God, he knows. We'll see it. We may not see it now, but we'll see. Man, being overruled by God is not a bad thing. There are many times when we're overruled by God, but listen, friend, there's many times where we must be overruled by God, that he would intervene in our lives and, and make a decision or allow a situation. I mean, that's what happens. We, we feel like we've been overruled when change comes into our lives, when changes come our way. We've planned and we've prepared. The man has made his plans, but the direction of the Lord stands. There's no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord, even though we try. But things change. They didn't go according to our plan. There's a new direction, a new place, a new situation, a new people. Change. You know, in the world, they say, you know, everybody has a, you know, most people have a problem with change. But I would say within the realm of our relationship with the Lord, we, we have a problem with the will of God. And if you're not there yet, you just haven't experienced a major overruling work of God yet that you see, wow, I, I don't like that. I don't see what you're doing right now, God. I don't know why you're allowing this, and I don't like it. But see, it's God's overruling providence that we need and want. Another way of saying and describing providence is his sovereign will for our lives. You see, his sovereign will is best for us, and it's best for him. You're listening to Abounding Grace with our pastor and teacher, Ed Taylor. Now, Ed, as you close things out today, you were speaking about the many times God intervenes in our lives and how we should actually be thankful for those times when we're overruled by God. Can you think of an example of that in your own life? Well, Larry, I can think of a lot of times in my own life. And I really, even the example that comes to mind, I can't really elaborate on uh, in its entirety But I can say that one time I'm grateful that God overruled me in my life is when we really believed we were called to plant a church in another city. We went, did all the groundwork, took the trips, was ready to rent a house, and God overruled me, sent me back to Southern California so that I might spend some time in my home church, growing and learning and being humbled. The one thing that that happened that I remember the most in the months that I was in my home church after that closed door was people were asking me, I thought you were planning a church. And I had to say, I'm not planning a church because I had to say that by the way, probably a thousand times. And what God was doing was he was humbling me. He was preparing me and he was readying me, not for the work that I wanted to do, but for the work that he wanted to do, not the place that I thought it was, but the place that he wanted me and it was extremely hard. And, and it's not just one-time event. Each time we're overruled by God, it's extremely hard. And sometimes it's beyond words can, ex- can express or explain. But I do know this, each and every time God is faithful, and he will do with us what he desires to do with us, and we will submit to him and love him and enjoy him. So be encouraged, even in this time. God, I pray for those that are in a season of being overruled by you, learning your ways, learning your will. We've kind of been conditioned, Lord, like it's all going to be easy. Just listen to this study or read this book. 
but it's not as easy as people make it out to be. It is challenging, and it requires an abundance of faith and surrender, a a huge amount of obedience and trust. And just pour that into us, Lord, as we follow your lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message from Ed Taylor is called God Does the Impossible, and it can be heard again at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Now see if this sounds familiar. You have a stubborn habit. You've prayed about it, you've surrendered it to God, and yet you still can't seem to break free. It's about that time that discouragement can begin to set in. Well, today we'd like to recommend a helpful book authored by Erwin Lutzer called How to Break a Stubborn Habit. In it, you'll find three essential ground rules you need to accept in order to change. Also, discover the secret to dismissing tempting thoughts. And Erwin Lutzer uncovers the roles of God, Satan, and your loved ones in your success or failure. Request a copy today when you give a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Call 877-30-GRACE or go online to calvaryco.store. And be sure to join Pastor Ed Taylor next time for more teaching from the book of 1 Samuel. That's right here on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.